0: Hello, listeners. We want to apologize for the poor audio quality on the first half of this sermon. We were experiencing some glitches with our microphone and were able to correct that midway, but the first few minutes are pretty crackly. The content can be heard well enough, but again, we apologize for the bad sound quality. Otherwise, we hope the sermon's a great blessing to you. Well, if you're wondering where Will is, we preaching over the Haven today, and so I'm going to cover today and next week, and then he'll finish his Ruth series on the September 12th when I'm taking Kate to school. So uh, I'll have to be on pins and needles for a few more weeks waiting to hear how that story turns out. Um, but today we're going to be back on the uh, letter of James. So if you've got your Bible, uh, turn with me to James 4. We uh, went through this text back in July, but we're going to go through it again. First 12 verses of James 4 there on uh, page 10 of your bulletin. You need a, don't, have your Bible, don't have your Bible with you. Let's hear again the word of the Lord. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't it this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and don't have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have because you don't ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist. The devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law you're not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He was able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. And our Father, now we ask you to give your spirit with the word to open our hearts like soil to good seed in Jesus' good name. Amen. I can relate to Pastor James a little. I've been very glad of his company this year, to be honest. He is navigating a young, very young church through an intense time socially. The social waters of his day are very intense. He's living, as you know, under the most dominant world empire in the history of world empires, the Roman Empire. And the religious establishment of his time, if you know anything about the life of Jesus, about 20 years before this letter was written, the religious establishment of Judaism is far more enamored of political agendas, honestly, than it is enamored of God's kingdom that has arrived with Jesus, and so James is you know helping the church through this time, and his heart throughout this letter for his scattered flock, they're kind of scattered geographically as well as I'm sure scattered emotionally, and they're suffering a lot, he's writing this letter because he wants to strengthen their grip. If he can get through the noise that they're dealing with in their lives, he wants to strengthen their grip on God on their Messiah, Jesus, and on their identity and their calling as part of God's kingdom in the world. They are the true 12 tribes of Israel. These Jesus followers are the... God's going to fulfill everything he promised to Abraham and them, and their story. And you may remember that the, the core of James's message to these struggling Christians, back in chapter 1, and this was no surprise if you know your Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, going all the way back to Genesis, especially chapter 3 of Genesis, where Adam and Eve are tempted... The core of James's message to these Christians is basically, you've heard this many times, that there are exactly and only two ways of living in this world for human beings. There are two roads. There are two paths. One road is human life shaped by the word of God the Father. Life that listens to God. I mean, the word of God in James' time, of course, has taken flesh in Jesus. So it's really life listening to Jesus in particular. But that's one way of life. As you are listening, you're Your radar is tuned in, you are dialed into, God is speaking, and you're listening to him. That's one way of life. And the other way of life is a life that is just pursuing human desires apart from the word of God. That's the other road. We all have desires. There's not a single human being who does not live full of desires, and you can chase those desires and live for those desires really apart from the word of God, and those are the two possible paths. There is no middle ground between them. Now, I, I tried to imagine myself hearing that at, say, 15. And I would have really reacted to that, because it sounds, and you gotta, you got to say Adam and Eve, That's probably how it kind of sounded to them, too. It might explain why they did what they did with the fruit. If I'm a young fellow hearing, you know, there's life under the word of God, and there's life chasing your desires, and what it sounds like is that God is just that miserable killjoy that we all tend to think that he is. God doesn't want you to have good fruit. God doesn't want you to have good life. You know, he's the enemy of desire. Anything that you might, you know, go after to be free and to flourish and have fun, God's just gonna squash it. That is the absolute opposite of what James is saying and what the whole Bible is saying. God is not the enemy of desire. God is the healer of desire. God is the healer of our desires because God wants us to be healthy. The word that James used in chapter one is God wants us to be perfect. When you and I hear perfect, we hear sinless. That's not what perfect means. Perfect does not mean sinless. God wants you to be perfect in the sense that he wants you to be whole. He wants you to be complete. He wants you to be the mature thing that he made you to be. And he's not going to settle for anything less. He will not settle for you living in a diseased, crippled, you know, shriveled version of what he has made you to be. God is growing us into wholeness, and he heals our desires to long for what is truly good for us. Well, at the end of chapter one, James gave a helpful shorthand for that way of life chasing desires apart from God. He said, that's the world. That's the world. He said, true religion is visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and keep yourself unstained by the world. That There's a polluted way of life from which Jesus' people are to remain unstained. You're to remain unpolluted because you're living under your Father's word. That's the world over there. Here's the life of the Father over here. Now, what I want to do, i want to ask two questions today. I'm not going to try to do too much in this sermon. I want to ask two questions. And the first question I want to ask, thinking about what I've just said, is what exactly is the world? This chapter here, chapter 4, you'll, I'm sure you saw it there. Friendship with the world is a serious problem. You cannot be a friend of the world and a friend of God. In fact, if you are the, the, the world's friend, you are God's enemies. This is kind of a big deal. What is the world? If I was, I'd love to take a poll right now and, you know, pass around a microphone. What is the world? I want to think about that for a minute. It's interesting, after James mentions the end of chapter 1, we need to keep ourselves unpolluted by the world, unstained by the world. He doesn't return to the world until this chapter, when he starts talking about fighting and quarreling and friendship with the world. But in the two chapters between chapter 2 and 3, we began to hear James explore the very different social fruit that comes from the Father's word in our life versus a life lived chasing selfish desires. So James had kind of explained in chapters 2 and 3 Building out of that chapter one contrast between the word of the Father and desires of our hearts, kind of apart from the Father, James begins to show us that when you're living under the word of God, it begins to make you a certain kind of neighbor. It begins to bring forth a way of relating to people. And if you're living chasing your own selfish desires, that's going to lead to a very different way of relating to people. Because the Word of God, the Word of God, the Father, is going to get into your life and it's going to start upending things like your social symbols, your status symbols. It's going to make it completely irrelevant, things like how much money you have. And, you know, all these things that people generally, you know, use to kind of hold themselves up as important. I matter. I have significance. I have, you know, my life has meaning. The Word just completely upends all of that. And you might start to see the poor man who walks into your church building as, you know, an heir of God's kingdom, and that rich person over there might be God's enemy, and it just it rattles all this social stuff. The word of God is going to do way more than that. It's going to animate good works. It's going to make you hungry to go do good because your heart is burning with love for this God who has loved you. It's going to bridle your tongue. You're going to find that because God has spoken, you need to not speak. It's going to produce what James in this last chapter, chapter 3, calls meekness. And, you know, we think of meekness as this mousy, weak, you know, kind of thing. It's nothing like that. Meekness, Jesus is meek. Meekness is humility before God that makes you measured in the way you treat other people. That's what the Word of God does in your life. It, it cr- creates a certain social posture, a certain social way of being. And now in this chapter, what James is doing is he's contrasting that good social fruit of the Word, the good social fruit of God the Father's Word in our life, He's contrasting that with the evil fruit of selfish desires, fighting, quarreling, murder even. And you notice, he says, these, this evil fruit and these, these selfish desires are found among, look at verse three, verse four, sorry. They are found, these desires are found among friends and lovers of the world. You are If you are living a life chasing your own desires apart from the word of God, you are in bed with the world. You are a friend of the world. So he connects. You know, there's this awful social fruit, fighting and quarreling and, you know, just even murder, very fractious way of being with each other, flows from desires, but those desires are because of friendship with the world, love of the world. And that's what we tried to explore in our last sermon, that social problems for James... Social problems signal a spiritual problem. And you'll notice here, it's not just that we can trace conflict in our lives, fighting and quarreling, to these inner cravings and passions. You don't even have to be a Christian to figure out that people fight because they want something. They fight because of cravings. They they clash with each other because of these desires. And we've explored in our last sermon kind of how that can go bad socially. But now you'll notice James is cutting even further. He's saying those inner cravings, those inner passions, the real problem with them is that they are allied with the world against God. That's the real root of the thing. These weeds, you know, hopefully you can get past the flowers of the conflict down into the actual stock of the the, the desires and cravings that fuel all of those nasty flowers. But now we're down in the root system. We realize, you know what, those weeds... Of my cravings and my passions, those weeds have a massive root system. It's even bigger than me. And I think this text, what I really think we need as we look at this text and think about the world, what is the world, we need to reassess a lot of what we have heard in Christian circles about the world or worldliness, you know, being worldly, because the portrayal of the world here, you'll notice, is absolutely negative. Like, there's not even a flicker of the world could be a good thing. The world, as James portrays it here, it is 100% opposed to God. It is war against God. There's no common ground. So what is the world? What's he talking about? He's traced conflicts to cravings to friendship with the world. What's the world? Well, it definitely cannot be creation. The world God made, it can't be that. God made the world, and it's everything that came from the hand of God is good, should be celebrated, enjoyed. And it can't just be culture. If by culture we just mean the stuff that God made humans to make and do, you know, people talk a lot about culture, and I don't wonder sometimes they know what they're talking about. You know, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Culture is just cultivating creation. It's just the stuff that human beings do with creation music, and art, and science, and business, and you know, economics, and politics, and all that. You know, we do stuff with creation. We, we, we form, and we, you know, God made us to do stuff with what he's made. And, and that, that is, as far as it goes, is just part of really part of God's creation. Human beings are culture builders. It can't be culture here that James is talking about. And there's no way you can take the world here and say, well, he's talking about a particular tribe, or a particular institution, or a particular society, or a particular nation. Like, you know, or a particular civilization. I mean, it's not just Rome, for example, although the world can be operating in any of those. It could be operating in this institution or that society or that nation. So, what is the world? What is it fundamentally? Well, at its root, this is what I want you to just think with me about. At its root, the world, biblically, when it's portrayed as an evil thing opposed to God, it really is just our ancient human quest for sovereignty. That's really what it is. It is our ancient human quest to be independent from God. The world is every desire, it's every endeavor that does not align itself with God's will, but disregards His will, ignores His will, or worse still, defies His will. You want to see the world like in real time? The murder of Jesus. It does not get any more worldly. Then the new humanity that God was putting together in the seed of Abraham, the family of Abraham, the people that God called out of darkness into His light, and gave them His the light of His truth and His revelation, and called them by His own name, and they, those people, not the Romans, although they you know kind of participated, you know, as a matter of the judicial process, but the 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 the, the, the Hebrews, the children of Abraham, the ones who were called by the name of God, they decide. They'd rather kill God's Son, the Savior of the world, than serve Him. I mean, it doesn't get more... That's that's like the quest for sovereignty at its apex. That is the, the height, of, or the depth, as you want to think of it, of our quest to be independent. We will not have this man rule over us. We will not have God rule over us through Jesus. That's the world. The world is manifested in every priority of our lives, every habit of our lives, every norm in our lives that leads us away... From obediently fellowshipping with God as He's working out His purposes in the earth. You are God's friends, you are God's subjects, you are God's children, you are God's fellow workers, and everything in our lives, habits, priorities, norms, whatever that's leading us away from obediently fellowshipping with God on that mission, that's the world. Worldliness increases to the exact degree that interest in God decreases. You guys listening? Worldliness increases to the exact degree that interest in God decreases. Precisely the less you're interested in God, the more you're interested in what we're talking about here, the more worldly you are. To the extent that the being of God, I'm not going to start with what God does, who God is the eternal one, the unchanging one, the infinite one, the one who is beyond and above all things. Before whom the nations are like a drop in the bucket, before whom the entire cosmos is but a plaything. The God who speaks things into existence. The God who had no beginning and will have no end, who is completely unrivaled in his sovereignty over all things, who gives breath to all creatures, who holds our very being in his, in, he upholds it by the word of his power. That God, to the extent he is not interesting to you, to the extent that he is not relevant to your life. And his presence, because that God is not off in the heavens, being God. He is God in and present to all things. He is not only transcendent, to use the big theological term, he is immanent. He is in, with, unto his creatures. To the extent his being and his presence and beyond that, his purposes, because God has purposed all things. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything that happens in history, everything that happens in your story, everything that happens in the big story of the world, God is moving and shaping and orchestrating all of this according to his purposes. That's the God we worship. And to the extent that that God's being and presence and purposes are not relevant to us, or worse, are disagreeable to us, to that extent we are infected and polluted by the world. What distinguishes Jesus' people from the world? Boy, there's confusion about this, beloved. Many of you have grown up like I did in circles where there's just major confusion about this. What distinguishes Jesus' people from the world is not, as I was taught growing up, that we live in this silo doing the holy things with the holy people. Right? We stay away from all those sinners out there and we got these holy things we do over here and we sit and we do those holy things and we really like our holy things and we stay in our silo doing our holy things with the holy people so we're not worldly. That is not... distinguishes Jesus' people from the world. Nor, dare I say, in 2021, is what distinguishes us from the world the fact that we occupy some specific niche on the modern political spectrum. God help us. Nor is what distinguishes us from the world that we have found the ultimate product for a happy social and psychological life. Come to Jesus, because it rocks. Can I tell you, sometimes you come to Jesus, and it's awful. Sometimes you come to Jesus and he decides you're going to die in his service after long suffering. It is not that we have the product in the world, you know, out there in the market. They just don't have a real thing. Please. That's a way to sell people a lie and get very, very, people very embittered if it doesn't work out the way they thought it would. What distinguishes Jesus' people from the world is very simply that by God's grace alone, because we had never lived this way on our own, by God's grace alone, we, Jesus' people, are submissively attuned to God's presence and God's purposes. No matter what else is going on, God is here working. And we are submissively attuned to that. That means my life is part of that. My life is subject to that. My life, I owe God's service in what he is doing here and now. That's, that's what distinguishes us from the world, that we seek first the kingdom of God, that's come through Jesus and is being unfolded now in the world through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's already very clear, I'm sure you picked up on this, that the desires then of the world are not just individual desires. The world also manifests itself collectively. As my friend Jake Meter says, desires end up being socialized. We, we socialize our desires, by that I mean the lusts, the cravings, the passions of our hearts, they become encoded, if you like. Encoded in our social advertising. Encoded in our spending habits. Encoded in our stories. Encoded in our music. Encoded in our memes. Encoded in our political tribalizing. Encoded in our rights talk. Encoded in our assumptions about what the good life is. Encoded in what everybody's obviously doing, so that's what you do. That's the socializing of these desires. The the Germans have a great word for this. Desires, as they socialize in a people, they become what the Germans call a zeitgeist. Zeitgeist, time spirit, or spirit of the time, spirit of the age. It's a great word, it's a very colorful word. A zeitgeist is simply a dominant set of desires that characterize a particular age. With all the priorities and the norms of life that flow out of that zeitgeist, that set of dominant desires, you might think about the zeitgeist that a lust for racial purity can create. We you know anything about that in the last century? You might think about the zeitgeist, the world spirit, the a- spirit of the age, where there's a lust for military conquest and just takes over society, takes over civilization. It might be a lust for enlightenment. It might absolutely in our time be a lust, a craving for progress, quote-unquote, and innovation and efficiency and making everything more manageable. And it turns into a zeitgeist. There's massive amounts of society now begin to reflect that dominant set of desires. A a lust for a particular kind of utopia has driven many societies. It's become their zeitgeist. Now what you'll notice in... James, of course, is speaking about this on the individual level, but it certainly is true, socially true. Sovereign desires, so nothing wrong with desires in their place, but sovereign desires, worldly desires in that sense, desires that have set themselves up in disregard of God or even defiance of God, sovereign desires create war. Because you all know something, even though we don't necessarily have kings anymore in this country, so we don't think about sovereigns so easily now, sovereigns do not like to be challenged. Ultimate authorities do not like to be challenged. And if there's a zeitgeist, there is a set of dominant desires, a set of dominant lusts that characterizes an age, you will find this creates war. There will be a militant fervor often against those who oppose the dominant desires of the zeitgeist. If you find yourself on the wrong side of a zeitgeist, you stand in dissent, you stand and say the emperor has no clothes, you stand and say there is sin in high places, or these things that are normal, these things that everybody's doing, they do not please the Lord, they are not, Christians cannot, Christians cannot be faithful and participate in these things, you're going to find yourself very unpopular. Maybe even on the wrong side of militancy. Or within a zeitgeist, within a set of dominant desires shared by everybody, you will often find there's this bitter competition for the rights and the resources that are deemed necessary to fulfill the dominant desires. If we all want the same thing and there's just not enough of that thing to go around, guess what's going to happen among us? We're going to start fighting. And there's a danger here in this conflict of zeitgeist against zeitgeist or within a zeitgeist various battles for resources and rights. There's a danger for Jesus' people, and we are seeing this in our time. It is very tempting as we're the body of Christ. We're over here. We're the Jesus' people. We're trying to live with all this going on around us, and it's in our hearts too, it is very tempting, beloved, please hear this, to pit one version of worldliness against another and somehow make this more Christian, and that's real worldliness over there. Very tempting to do that. I like, I resonate with that zeitgeist more as a Christian, maybe because it's older. Maybe I like, I'm not saying I do, maybe I like 1950s worldliness, I really hate 21st century worldliness. Or I fantasize about 1770s worldliness because I'm so fed up with 2021 worldliness. There's a lot of history of this sort of thing. The 20th century Christians, 20th century evangelical Christians so obsessed with the evils of the communist zeitgeist, which were legion, they were absolutely blind to the sins of American democratic Zeitgeist, blind to them. Because they could pit one Zeitgeist against another. We are the Zeitgeist of freedom. What could be wrong with that? What could be wrong with that indeed in the eyes of God? Or now, in our time, it's very easy. I hear Christians all the time doing this, taking a side in a current political skirmish, seemingly oblivious to how both sides in this skirmish share the same lusts of individualism, cravings of a self-absorbed lifestyle that just, I do, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, I want to be left alone to do it. Thank you very much and give me lots of it. Shared on both sides of the political skirmish. Or how both sides in these skirmishes are committed to the worship of mammon, committed to worshiping the God of material prosperity. Both sides of the skirmish. And James says, you've got to keep yourself unstained from the world. Be careful as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, you're not pitting one version of worldliness against another. You've got to be able to see worldliness wherever it shows up. Because to a fish, beloved, to a fish, polluted water just feels like water. Polluted water just feels like water. And the more it's in your tribe, the more it feels just like normal water. And the filtration system the Apostle Paul tells us, is the renewing of your mind. Be not conformed to the age. Don't be conformed to the zeitgeists, plural. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You've got a filtration system in which God is slowly reorienting your desires toward the will of the Father rather than all these toxic fantasies of independent flourishing. Now, second question, it will be much shorter. Hopefully it gives us some idea. What's the world? Here's my second question, and we'll close with this. Are we worldly? Are we worldly? You know, it's very easy to think of worldliness in terms of sort of big moral sins. And now, to a stunning degree, to think of worldliness as basically holding a political view I disagree with. They're the worldly Christians. But I'd like to consider very briefly how dominant desires, how the spirit of our age can be reflected, not so much in our conscious actions, though it can, or our conscious ideas, though it can, but how this zeitgeist, this spirit of the age, these dominant desires can be reflected just in the very deep assumptions that form our daily life. There are two lusts of this age that we're living in that have so shaped our everyday life, and God is now bringing them up empty. Let me just offer them briefly, and this will all be done. One is the lust for certainty, the lust for certainty. There are a few things that are more basic to the modern spirit than we believe. We we invest trillions of dollars in this belief that if you give us enough time and enough energy and enough resources, we can get everything figured out and we can manage it. Things like viruses. Just give us more time, energy, and resources. We will figure it out and we will manage it. We crave the certainty that comes with managing things. And the flip side of that certainty is just control. We crave it as modern people. It's interesting that in the early Genesis, way back in the beginning of the Bible, the children of Cain, the rebellious son, sought certainty in building cities. The children of Seth, the righteous line, guess where they found their certainty? It wasn't in building cities. What was it? What did they build? Who can tell me? They didn't find their certainty in cities that they built. They found certainty at altars that they built along the path of their pilgrimage. You can see our age prefers activism to attention. It prefers planning to pondering. It prefers our working so we can rest rather than working from rest. We lust in the modern world, we lust to replace the hope that can be found only in God with certainty arising from our efforts. That is deeply embedded in the modern spirit. And now God has dashed that certainty. I've been thinking a lot about this recently. For the last five years, I've been trying to absorb the fact that my children and grandchildren are going to, not going to live in the world I envisioned. They're not. And my response to that. Tells a lot about how big my God is and how solid my fellowship with Him actually is. If God is who He is, and He is, and God's promises are what they are, and they are, and I am walking closely with Him, then there is absolutely never a time when I should experience panic or a frustrated tantrum before the Lord. This never changes. God never changes. Therefore, my hope in the Lord needs never to change. And I can do good and that needs to never change either. Because God doesn't change. I can just hope in the Lord and do good. I can trust in the Lord and do good. And that never changes. Because God. Amid the shaking of everything else. So the question is this. Is God my only certainty? Is he the one thing that I am completely settled upon? You know... The crazy thing about Ben Miller, I've discovered, is that it actually takes something being shaken for me to figure out that God is my only certainty. I have this fantasy in my head that somehow, sometimes I'm kind of in control. And then God shows me in some way that I'm really, really not. I'm like, oh my word, I've got to trust in the Lord. What were you doing the rest of the time? If God is your only certainty, he's your only certainty because he is your only certainty all the time. And that just frees us in times that seem stable, and times that seem completely out of control. It just frees us to rest in him alone not some particular configuration of his benefits. You know, I want God to configure his benefits a certain way in my life, and then I can rest in him. God says, no, I'm not going to configure the benefits the way you want them to be configured. I'm going to give you myself, and you go do my will without worrying about guarantees. You know, this is Ruth. This is a brilliant point that Will's been bringing out of Ruth's story. This week, a couple weeks ago, I had a very weird experience. I went back. I was hoeing out some stuff. I went back through all of my old... Session files, all, all the files of all my uh, elder meetings, going back to when I became a, a pastor in 2005. And I'm digging through, I mean, piles of pastoral records, and I'm revisiting, reliving all these stories, all this stuff I spent days of my life working on. You know the crazy thing in retrospect? So how much of it came to nothing? How much of it in the end? After days and days and days and days and days and hours and agonizing, sleepless nights of investing, it came to nothing. The whole thing just came to nothing. And other things that I invested in very, very passionately and with my whole heart, God brought fruit. And looking back, I can realize I didn't have any control over any of it. In fact, sometimes the more I invested, the less came of it. All I had then is all i have now i cast my bread upon the water i sow a seed here i sow a seed there because in the end i have exactly one certainty and that certainty is god absolutely everything else i don't know what the next 10 minutes is going to bring and if we are not comfortable with that i mean to put it bluntly we have an idol that's greater than god I have God, that's my certainty. God is bringing us to that now, whether we like it or not. He is shaking that dominant desire of certainty. And the other one that he's shaking, and I'm very close to done is our lust for connectivity. We don't just lust for certainty, we lust for connectivity. Our age has a passion for continual expansion. More is good. Like it doesn't get more modern than that. More is good. More information, more opportunities, more resources, more experience, more network, more influence, endlessly pushing the limits, endlessly growing, endlessly progressing, endlessly reaching for more. There's this horrific comment made by some Google executives in their t- 2013 book called A New Digital Age. Listen to this. This is, this is the modern spirit. It, I mean, It doesn't get any clearer than this. They say, the best thing anyone can do to improve the quality of life around the world. Now, how would you answer that? The best thing anyone can do to improve quality of life around the world. What would you say? This is their answer at Google, to drive connectivity and technological opportunity. That's the spirit of the age. That's the zeitgeist. And many of us are finding in 2021 that our refusal to disconnect and to love our literal places and the people God has put in those literal places, this refusal to disconnect and love these people and places is creating toxicity. At the very, very least, we would have to say now, more connection does not equal more communion. Because we choose our connections. We don't always get to choose the people we get to commune with, but we choose our connections. That means we we get to call the shots. It means that those of us that are searching for an identity, guess what we're going to do as we connect? We're going to quickly tribalize with those who affirm us. And those of us who are gripped by an ideology are quickly going to tribalize with those who agree with us. So it's just so easy. We can, we can manage it all. And this leads to very sickly connections, but it's worse. Even if that doesn't make you, all that connectivity doesn't make you hostile towards those you actually have to live with in your actual place, and maybe it won't make you hostile. What it will do is it will rob you. you some of you know this so well. It will rob you of the time and the energy that you need for the much harder work of learning how to commune within the boundaries of a shared time and a shared place. It'll steal it from you. I would even ask if connectivity and communion might be inversely related to each other if for no other reason then you've only got so much time and so much emotional energy. I wonder if James would say in 2021, pure religion, visit the orphans and widows and keep yourself disconnected from the world. I'd like you guys to go home and do something for me at some point in this next week. I want to lay, I'd like you to lay before the Lord this simple question. What desires drive your life? what desires drive your life and to what extent is it possible before the Lord that they have been infected by this ancient human quest for sovereignty and independence because Christ has set you free live in that freedom amen father bless these things to our most practical affairs of everyday life in Jesus good name we pray amen